Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. This week is week two of the April of Pluto. We're going to be talking about more about the research that the five research papers that came out about Pluto and the Plutonian system, and I'll give you my thoughts on them, and we'll really get into it. Uh, We'll also talk about some orbital news and the SpaceX CRS-8 mission. And don't forget to check out this Saturday. They're going to be installing the BEAM experiment. You'll learn more about that later. But it's another step towards our way to Mars, so don't miss that. And as always, if you want to help support the show and keep the lights on here at the studio, uh, please do your internet shopping, your Amazon shopping, through our link that's on every week's episode or at the homepage of todayinspace.net forward slash home. And basically, real simple, cost you nothing, do your shopping just like you regularly do after you click on the link, and Amazon kicks us back a little bit here so we can keep the lights on, the microphones recording, and the science coming at you. So thank you, and let's get on with the show. How are you? Hope everything's going well. I hope your week was amazing and awesome and that you're just going for it. My week's a little weird. My week was definitely a little weird. And I'll explain. Uh, Thursday morning, right before I was recording last week's podcast, or maybe it was Friday morning, either way, broke my glasses. They were on their way out. They were one of those low-profile glasses, you know, the one with only metal on the top half, and then there's like a clear plastic cord that holds the bottom. Really, all that really means is that they're going to just break way sooner than the regular glasses. So, those broke, and the only thing I had, because I haven't worn contacts in a really long time, and I, it's my first day at work with eight hours, no, ten hours of contacts for the first time in almost a year. So that was terrible. So contacts were a no-go. So I had to wear the only pair of prescription glasses I had left, which were my sunglasses. So at first I was like, you know, what are you going to do? You know, I need to go to work. (laughs) Glasses are going to take a while. And uh, this is all I can do. You know, I ordered my glasses, I think it was that Saturday. So it was only, you know, a day of work with those and... Unfortunately, it takes like a week for glasses to get made, so I was stuck with those sunglasses. Uh, at first, it was pretty cool. You know, everyone at the office was actually pretty good about it. Uh, no one was really giving me a hard time. Uh, I mean, obviously, I was getting made fun of a little bit because that's just what you do, you know? Uh, it, was, it was all in good fun, no problem. Everyone was kind of like, yeah, yeah, you kind of look cool, you know, whatever. It's no problem. But as the week started going further, I started noticing, like, weird things. I don't know. I, I, I couldn't really tell what it was. Like, it just seemed like I was having a harder time at work dealing with people and just dealing with people in general. I, I didn't really understand it. I could just feel this, this energy, this 
irritation that I wasn't sure was it me, was it other people, was it me picking it up from other people? I don't know. I didn't know what it was. And it literally wasn't until, shit, two days ago? Yeah, two days ago that I finally, like, put it all together. What was happening was with my sunglasses, like, nobody could see my eyes. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty blind without my glasses, so I was wearing them the whole day. Otherwise, I would have taken them off. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking to people and, you know, looking at them, and I'm seeing this weird look in everyone's faces, like they're, like they're prying, like they're, they're trying to get something out of me. And I just kind of was just, just had this kind of like, what, what, what? Like, uh, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? Like, what's going on? But I wasn't saying that. It was just my kind of attitude. It was kind of like, well, what? What? You, what? And so, I, and so then I'm like, all right, is it me? Are they mad at me? Did I do something wrong? What, what the hell? And so that just kept building and building all week. And I didn't really have any idea what it was. And then I realized that it's because nobody can see my eyes. Like, it's incredible how much information we take, how much data we process just in someone's eyesight. You know, we don't, we kind of take that for granted how much we actually pick up of someone's emotions and, and in a conversation from someone's eyes and just, not just the eyes, but you know, the way, uh, the whole face moves, you know, and if I'm cutting out this, the whole huge portion of it, people are going to act weird. And so it was this weird thing where I wasn't really saying anything and nobody else was really saying anything, but so we were both kind of feeling the same vibe. We we're both kind of a little bit irritated, but no one was saying anything. <laughs> so it just, it just became this ball of stress. And I, I, I could, I underst I felt it because, you know, I used to be very, very stressed out and did a lot to turn my life around to not be stressed out. And so whenever I feel that, I know there's something up. I know something's not getting done or I'm, I'm missing something or, you know, I need to write down a list or something. But, you know, this month has been very busy, very scheduled for me because I'm uh, doing a lot of work for the show here. And <laughs> uh, it was just insane to realize that it was something stupid, simple, like, just people can't see my eyes. You know, it's, it's the little things like that. You just kind of get blown. You're just like, wow, what? That's all it was. And so what I did the very next day, as soon as I figured it out, when I was talking to people, took off my glasses. And it fixed it like immediately. Immediately. It was ridiculous. It really was. I, I can't even explain it. And then... It, to even further it, I mean, let's let's think about it from like more of a uh, scientific side. You know, not having sunlight, you know, seasonal depressional disorder, you know, all that stuff. Like, I wasn't seeing any sunlight for days. I was living in the darkness. I had to turn lights on just to see things. It was crazy. 
So I'm not getting all this sunlight and it's just making everything's just getting worse and worse and worse and building and building and building. And I was couldn't figure it out until I was talking it out to somebody and it clicked like a light bulb. So needless to say, I would not make it very well in, in a place like Seattle. And let's let's keep to the genre here in space. If you're living with people. And you're one of those people who wears sunglasses all the time. Don't. Because I guarantee you, in a situation like that, where people are all locked up, can't go outside, they're already dealing with a lack of stimulation that a human being is genetically used to. If you're that asshole who wears sunglasses all the time just because you want to, or your choice of <laughs> uh, eyewear is dark, so people can't see your eyes. There's going to be some some really really weird shit that's going to happen. I mean, we we might even have Lord of the Flies shit going down. Eyesight is hugely important to communication, to uh, healthy culture and environment you need to see their eyes there's so much data we take in we don't even know the human brain processes so much stuff that we take for granted and i learned front and center that wearing sunglasses on a daily basis is no bueno so like i said weird week got through it i'm here let's start by getting into Week two of the April of Pluto. Pluto! So, to continue from last week, what we're going to do is continue going through these top New Horizons findings. We're going to say the full scientific explanation that NASA gave, the real short, concise one. And then we'll roll into it, we'll kind of break it down and, and talk a little bit more about it. And I'll, of course, as always, give my thoughts on the issue. So, we'll start this one with number three on that list. I have no idea if it's actually in order of importance or anything. But the top nine, nonetheless, we're on number three. The distribution of compositional units on Pluto's surface, from nitrogen-rich to methane-rich, to water-rich, has been found to be surprisingly complex, creating puzzles for understanding Pluto's climate and geologic history. The variations in surface composition on Pluto are unprecedented elsewhere in our outer solar system. Damn phone, shut up. Stop disobeying me, phone. Anyway, sorry about that, people. So what does that mean? Let's, uh, let's, let's say it in a, in a different way. So what they found on Pluto's surface, not only what elements they found, the ingredients of Pluto's surface, but just how complex it is, is astounding and, and not what anyone expected. You know, once again, we're talking about an area called the Kuiper Belt, which 
is thought to be the remnants of the creation of our solar system. The outer, you know, dust and asteroids and the junk, basically. Old and worn out, you know. It is, there's very little influence from the sun compared to our inner part of the solar system, both from heat and uh, from just a gravitational influence. So to find a planet that has these complex uh, nitrogen-rich, methane-rich, water-rich areas makes it this this gem, this diamond in the rough that no one expected to be there. Even people who love Pluto didn't expect it to be like this. And that's a great thing. It means that the Kuiper Belt is not just this old, worn-out belt of rocks and dust. It's an entire, the way I see it, it's an entire oasis filled with gems that we can find that not only will give us a better idea of how what the solar system was when it first began what what you can find in a solar system but it's going to help redefine what our solar system really is in the first place you know again this third zone of our solar system the kuiper belt we haven't even seen this is our these are our first views of the Kuiper Belt. And we went to Pluto, arguably, if this is the only place in the Kuiper Belt, we went to the most exciting place in the Kuiper Belt. There's so much going on, and more importantly, from what we do observe from the Kuiper Belt, at a distance, Pluto is not like the Kuiper Belt. It doesn't have anything that the Kuiper Belt has from what we've seen and figured out. So how did it get there? Was it originally in the inner part of the solar system and then for some reason maybe got stuck? Its its orbital path just happened to be perfect that maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure, I don't know 100% about um, positions of planets in the solar system and stuff like that, but it's totally possible that it did some weird orbital dance around... Jupiter, because that would be the one that would have enough gravitational force and influence to catapult it out. You know, and then it ended up settling in the Kuiper Belt. You know, that is a huge question to figure out. You know, or are we completely wrong about the Kuiper Belt? And does the Kuiper Belt have more of these other planets that are just sitting there, is is the Kuiper Belt, is the third zone of the solar system a sort of shield or a sort of uh, barrier where things outside the influence that happen to come in and are uh, the same plane as our solar system spins, our orientation, is that there to help pick up any stragglers that might try and get in? Is this something that universal nature instills in a solar system. I don't know. 
but it's definitely making me think. And I would never have even thought of this kind of thing or even thought it was a reasonable thought if we didn't have this kind of research. You know, and to go more into it, the other thing we're going to find out from this complex uh, nitrogen-rich, methane-rich, and water-rich plutonian surface you like that we're going to find more about its climate and its geologic history as apparently through science we can actually figure that out just by what's available on the surface but again complete curveball nothing we expected again we thought pluto was this you know ancient rock that really didn't have much going on but it was it was a place to go. It was something we have never seen. Was original was for as long as we had known it, up until the last few years, was our ninth planet in our solar system. And now we're here, and we don't even know what it is. And the good thing about it being so complex means that we have plenty of work cut out for us to figure out what all these different puzzles of nitrogen mixing with methane, mixing with water, and all the other ingredients that are down there on Pluto's surface, what does that do to Pluto's climate? What does that mean geologically? How does the surface interact when, you know, uh, a nitrogen glacier comes across a, I don't know, a methane pond? I, I, I'm not 100% sure, but, you know, how does that work? We don't know. We don't know what that's like. But now we have data to actually guess and, and make an educated guess. Because again, even though we went by Pluto this one time on a five-day trip that took th over three billion miles to get there, who knows what season we're even in? You know, it takes 200-something years for an orbit of Pluto where the temperature is changing from very close to zero Kelvin, <laughs> extremely cold, uh, up to, oh, I, I, don't, I don't even have the number, but it gets, relatively for that area, pretty warm, which means things are going to be melting and changing phase, which means the surface could look completely different at a different part of its orbit. So we may have only grabbed a snapshot of what Pluto was like at that point in its orbit, at that point in its life, and it will never be the same ever again. Especially with, with how geologically active it seems to be. You know, if we ever did another mission to Pluto, which I hope we would, I wouldn't be surprised if it looks very different. And it would be very interesting to see what that would look like. So, number three, very interesting, and a, a lot to come from that. A lot of good research and science going forward and helping us understand more about the king of the Kuiper Belt and really the Kuiper Belt itself. Pluto! So, let's move on to the next one for this week, which is number six on that list. And it states, also, for the first time, 
a plausible mechanism for forming Pluto's atmospheric haze layers has been found. This mechanism involves the concentration of haze particles by atmospheric buoyancy waves, called gravity waves by atmospheric scientists, created winds blowing over Pluto's mountainous topography. So if, if I get that right, essentially, to start, before I go on a tangent here, one of the pictures, the iconic pictures of Pluto when we first passed and started getting the data back was this image of Pluto's atmospheric haze. It was like a blue and purple haze that no one could really explain because everyone just assumed from what we were observing that Pluto's atmosphere was just leaking out like an open faucet and we really didn't expect to see anything much, you know. Um, you know, about as screwed as, say, a planet like, like Mars is, where it's just very little atmosphere, you know, not much going on. What are you going to do? But when we saw this image of Pluto's atmosphere, it just was incredible. And we didn't really have a reason why. You know, even didn't even have a, an explanation. Just kind of stunned. And what the research is stating is that it could be that one of the things that's forming Pluto's atmospheric haze, the mechanism is involving something called buoyancy waves or gravity waves. And these are created from the winds that are blowing over Pluto's mountainous topography. Because if you've look at, looked at any of the pictures of Pluto, you see all those mountains. And as we've learned, some of them are actually glaciers. And there's some pretty, I mean, they're very tall mountains. They're not small by any means. And <laughs> these, these buoyancy waves and gravity waves are blowing these haze, the concentrated haze particles. And, and that could be what's creating this atmospheric haze. It's just a wild thought to even think about, you know. And I, I could have it wrong, but the way I'm seeing it is it's almost, you know, whatever's going on with the atmosphere, it's basically blowing over these mountaintops. And they're almost going off of a ski jump into the atmosphere. Which is wild. You know, we have it, we have it so good here on Earth, you know, everything's relatively stable you know as far as a uh, planet's atmosphere is concerned it's contained it's mostly stable you know so we're not losing atmosphere like crazy you know and pluto it's so ridiculous out there given the temperatures and the ingredients that they have that <laughs> these the atmosphere can actually go off the mountaintops and just kind of ride above. And you, we saw that with these haze layers. It's just, it's a, it's a really cool thought and would be really interesting if, if that was what was causing those atmospheric haze layers. Pluto! And finally for this week from this list, 
going to talk about number two. And this is what it says. This one's about Karen, the binary locked moon of Pluto. Pluto's moon, Karen, has been observed to have an ancient surface. As an example, the great equatorial expanse of smooth plains on Karen, informally named Vulcan Planum, home of the moated mountains, informally named Kubrick and Clark Mons, is likely a vast cryovolcanic flow or flows that erupted onto Karen's surface about 4 billion years ago. These flows are likely related to the freezing of an internal ocean that globally ruptured Karen's surface. So let's, 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 let's run this down real quick. So this huge expanse on Karen of smooth plains, that's called Vulcan Planum, right? This happened because an internal, an underground ocean... For whatever reason, whether it froze and expanded, most likely if it's a cryovolcano they're talking about, right? So it froze and ruptured, just went through the crust of Karen, blew out an ice volcano, and created this smooth plane on Karen's surface. And that happened four billion years ago. What? I mean that's that's ridiculous. I mean let's let's think about this. I mean number 1 just just the the dynamic between Pluto and Charon itself, right? Pluto looks relatively young. You know, pretty active for how old it seems to be or at least what we thought it was. And you got Charon who's this binary locked moon. Essentially, like our Earth and our moon. Karen is the equivalent of our moon, right? It's locked in. They're, they're one, gravitationally. Right? But it looks old. It looks ancient. It, it doesn't look like it has much geologic activity going on. And the one, one of the major features is this huge expanse of smooth plains. And that was created from a volcano that spews ice instead of magma. But how crazy is that? I mean, essentially, Karen, instead of having magma at its core, has got an ocean. I'm not sure if that's true, but that's equivalently on Earth. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's kind of like those couples where you're like, is that... Is is she the mom and he's the son, or is is he the father and she's the daughter? Oh wait, they just kissed. Oh my god, what? Oh my, that's that doesn't seem right. Might be a little extreme, but that's what I'm going for here. So, the question is, it, 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 where did these two meet, Karen and Pluto? Did they meet on their way out to the Kuiper Belt? 
if they came in from the inside of the solar system? Did they meet in the inside of the solar system? And then their binary gravity somehow gave them a slingshot out? Or did Pluto come from the inside of the solar system and meet up with Karen in the Kuiper Belt? You know, because they're so different geologically. Kind of have to wonder, you know, which it's kind of like a which came first, the you know the chicken or the egg. You know where where did this come from? How did they how did they get together? All right, I want the first date going on here. All right, because clearly there's there's they're together, <laughs> obviously. Um, but no, it's it's a really interesting find. Ice volcanoes. I love that. I think that's so fucking cool. Cryovolcanoes. It's wild. And I mean, if you've ever frozen something in, in the freezer, like a water bottle, when you weren't supposed to, or the, I think the best example is a, a beer, right? Don't keep the beer in the, uh, the ice, the freezer too long, or that thing is going everywhere. And then it's a disaster to clean that up because obviously it's happened to me before. You know, while you're cleaning it, you gotta have the door open. Pluto! Oh god. Yep. Pluto's talking all over the place. Anyways, you gotta you gotta clean it out, so you gotta have the door open, which means it it starts melting. So then you get beer over everything else. It's just a disaster. And clearly a cryovolcano is just as much a disaster. weird stuff i i interested to see where karen came from and if they started together or they found each other you know the more we learn about this plutonian system i mean the more questions we have to ask which is at the core what research is like new research this is the exciting shit that's happening right now Questions leading to kind of answers, but really just more questions. It's a never-ending puzzle. And we're beginning it now, people. Get into this shit. I mean, if you're listening, you obviously are. It's amazing. Pluto! Before we close out with the final thoughts here for this week's April of Pluto, uh, I wanted to catch you guys up on some of the other stuff that's been going on. Uh, real quick, 3D printing update. Uh, continue to fix and adjust and, and make the the box for my 3D printer better. Um, for those of you who don't remember or if you're new, uh, going to be 3D printing ABS plastic, which is essentially the same plastic that Legos are made out of. It's a lot stronger than PLA, which is the bio uh, version of that. Um, does not have toxic fumes, but ABS does. Uh, so one of the things I need to do is create a little vent system, put a fan, uh, just you know, one of those aluminum coils, and drill the hole in the side of my building. Um, luckily 
I have been doing construction for a little over a decade, so I kind of knew what I was doing. Um, turned out fine. Uh, you know, a few little adjustments I had to make. Uh, you know, number one was, uh, you know, a little, whatever the vent that I had on the outside of the house. Uh, it's a diffuser, so basically it's just a little hole with a plastic rim, and then there's a uh, a threaded rod and, like, a cap, kind of, that threads in, and then you it helps you figure out how much, you know, air you're going to let out. So one of the problems with that, though, is that it's just an open hole. So I would have spiders and just all kind of bugs getting in there. So I had to put uh, netting in there. Uh, luckily, I actually had mosquito netting, so that worked perfectly. Uh, put that on there with a little bit of silicone and got the pipe in and made it work. Uh, the ceiling had a hole in it, so I had to add um, just some nice trim so that way it doesn't look like crap. And uh, we're almost there. People, we're almost there. I just need to find some open time to start printing. That will be in May because April is booked solid. So no 3D printing until then. At least nothing solid to report. And that's it. We're moving forward with that. So we are ready. The next step, the last thing I need to do for my 3D printer is to upgrade the power supply. So that's the next project in May. And then hopefully by June this summer... We should be ready to go to fully print full tilt, barring nothing else happens. <laughs> but uh, very excited that I finally got that done and really just can't wait to start doing that. ABS is a whole new level, and I've got tons of things ready to print for that. So can't wait. Let's move on. Next, in orbital news, we have to talk about the SpaceX CRS-8 launch, all right? Just tons of history being made with this launch. To start, let's talk about the payload. Other than the science experiments that are going to be on board and all the resupply material that's necessary for the crew that's on board and the science it'll end up bringing back with the Dragon capsule, the most celebrity of the items on board is the Bigelow Aerospace Beam Project, which is the first testable, inflatable habitat that's going to be attached onto the International Space Station this Saturday, I believe. So you can actually watch it live. So Canadarm2 is actually going to grab it and attach it on, and then I'm assuming they're going to test it, which I believe means they're going to inflate it with air, um, and that's a whole thing in itself. Uh, we don't know how an inflatable habitat is going to inflate in space. Will it be the same thing as it is on Earth, or will will it be different? That's always the whole thing with space travel here and trying out new things is how does it work in space? Because most of the time it does not work the same as it does on Earth. And so what does this mean down the road? Why are we testing inflatable habitats? Inflatable habitats, right off the bat, if you go from a monetary thing, if you're talking about cost, is a lot more feasible if they work. Because then we just need to bring up these multi-layered cloth inflatable things that will can be stored in smaller space and will weigh less, which means it will be less expensive to bring them into space, which helps us cut a shortcut path 
to building in space and living in space without having to actually manufacture in space, which is a great thing to have down the road, but just not a reality right now. And so one of the big things, as always, with space travel is the cost of launch, because that's where the mission begins. If you can't sell or finance a mission into space because it's too expensive to launch it up, it's not happening. And you have to cut corners and cut costs to get whatever experiment you're trying to test up there. And inflatable habitats help us do way more. Number one on that list is Mars. Colonizing Mars, that's huge. But really, colonizing anything, inflatable habitats would be extremely useful for living in space long term. And if we can figure out how to do them on the International Space Station, then we're one step ahead on doing them somewhere else. So whether it's the moon, whether it's Mars, whether it's anywhere else, maybe it's an orbital station. An inflatable habitat allows us to have way more room and do it faster and quicker. That's the same thing with less cost. That's what I was looking for. That word, money, which is the cornerstone of science, unfortunately. And fortunately, because now that we have a private industry, we can do both. So thanks to the private industry, both Bigelow Aerospace and SpaceX, we're moving forward faster than we were before. So really awesome. Go check that out Saturday. And also, the next historic thing, I think before we, I mean, you've already heard of it, but before we start there, let's go back to the broadcast that SpaceX released, which I finally had a chance to watch, and it was really something. It, it really was. All these SpaceX launches and broadcasts are just filled with good information, and no offense to NASA, but I don't know what it is. Uh, like, I, I enjoy watching NASA broadcast, but it's the very technical, very old-school scientific broadcast. And when you add in a private company's twist on it, man, it gets pretty exciting. I'm not going to lie to you. And so the launch started, well, I'm sorry, the launch occurred at 4.43 p.m. Eastern Time, Eastern Daylight Time. And one of the first things I noticed was the camera they had on the Falcon 9 wasn't moving around like they do in the NASA things. They had that thing pinned on the Falcon 9 rocket from the moment it launched pretty much until it went out of sight. But more importantly, you could see every detail of that rocket as it was going up, which I've never seen in a broadcast before. I could be wrong. It definitely could have been in other broadcasts by NASA or any of the space agencies, but wow, it added a whole new layer to me um, of meaning of what the hell we're actually doing. Launching a rocket into space? Like, we lose track of it in, 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 in the other broadcast. It kind of gets wavy, and you can't keep track of it because it's, it's a long-range camera that's trying to lock on. And I don't know if they automated it or if they have a ground-based telescope watching it. I don't know. But whatever they're doing, holy crap. 
Watch, just watch that one part. If you're going to watch any of it, just watch from the launch until it goes out of sight and just watch that rocket and, and, and take in and realize what you're actually looking at. It, it looks like the future. It, was, it got me so pumped up this week to watch that. I can't even, I'm tingling right now. That's how excited I am. It's freaking amazing. I love everything that we're doing right now in the space race. The private space race, if you will. But we're kicking ass. Another thing I want to point out is uh, they do something new every broadcast with SpaceX, that being one of them. And the other thing I noticed was they're having reporters and hosts, which if you've been following, uh, some of them are the hosts that started from the beginning when they really started first hosting. So it was good to see familiar faces. Um, they've they've kind of gained themselves a little bit seniority. They have a little bit uh, more on-air time than everybody else. But what's really interesting to me and what I think is really awesome is that everyone who's a broadcaster for these launches are also employees of the company. They're engineers. They're not just, you know, they're they're not just uh, broadcasters. They're actually working on stuff at SpaceX. And so just to run through the names, because we don't have enough time, but just to give you an idea of the variety of people that are at SpaceX and the opportunities that they seem to have at SpaceX... It's just amazing. You had Brian, who was an automation software engineer. You had Kate, who was a process improvement engineer. John, who was a lead mechanical design engineer. Jessica, who was director of Dragon Mission Management. And Tom was a firmware engineer. Each one had their own personality style. Each one had their own broadcasting style. And they're all doing what I'm trying to do here, which is become a more well-rounded engineer, adding that, that one big piece that seems to be historically missing from very intelligent engineers and just engineers in general, which is the social aspect, the communication aspect, which is at the cornerstone of how we're going to get to the next step with our science. We've gone through with brute intelligence and brute determination, but to be able to be an engineer, a scientist, an intellectual working on these things, and if you're able to communicate that, your efficiency is tenfold. People will listen. People will be interested. People will be excited to be involved in that and they'll remember it because they remembered you or at least you said it in a way that they'll now understand because you have a personality you have a presence that then makes that science tenfold more important and I thought that was so exciting for any engineer not just myself but any engineer who wants to get into the private space industry, what SpaceX is offering is opportunity on opportunity. At least it seems so on the outside. You know, and there's articles out there that always talk about the stress levels high. And, you know, there's always some article, I always see them on LinkedIn, where they've got the same 
it's it's a picture from the same interview that they always take it from that was snipped from a different time that's just a different expression that Elon has in his face and then it's some uh some title that's like wah, wah, Elon Musk isn't as great as we thought he was or that you thought he was because clearly the people writing that don't have anything better to do and it's just hilarious to to watch people talk shit about this guy. He's out there doing it. All these people are out there. Brian, Kate, John, Jessica, Tom, just to name those five people that I saw on the broadcast were the only five people that I know who work at SpaceX. They're out doing it. They're out going for it. The stress level is there because we're doing things we're not supposed to be doing. We're just going into space. People are getting complacent, like they did when we started going to the moon. The same shit happened. We went a few times, and then once, once it went away, people became pieces of shit again, and they started talking about how, well, this is too much money, and blah, 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 why are we doing this, blah, 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 blah. Having their own broadcast and, and putting it out to the people in a way that's exciting and energetic will keep that momentum going. And I love everything that they're doing over there, and I wish them nothing but luck. And they don't really need it because they broke history again. Again! By landing the first rocket, first stage, on an autonomous spaceport drone ship. Or, said another way, they landed a rocket on a freighter in the ocean. And it came back to port. And they're investigating it now to see if it's launchable again. One more step forward towards reusability. And that landing couldn't have been any softer. I mean, it it really was something else. But one one of the other things that's really important that I learned from this broadcast is that those kind of the the fact that that landing happened is great but it happened probably because it was set up to land in a much easier position so this mission unlike the one where they landed on land for the first time the movement the rocket has to do the first stage in order to get into position to land again the uh, boost burn or boost back burn or whatever refiring the engines have to do to position itself, excuse me, to position itself to land again was in the, in the same direction as it was launching. So momentum wise and fuel wise and trajectory wise, a lot easier, had more fuel to use to adjust itself, which meant it could land much easier. The oceans were the calmest I had ever seen them on a barge landing, which obviously helps there's also 4k video out there for anyone with 4k video check that out i can't even imagine what that looks like in 4k the land landing (laughs) was done with a boost bag burn that had to flip the rocket over the top and come backwards so that takes so much more fuel to do that which means it has less fuel to 
readjust itself and all this stuff. Plus, not only that, it's not just the movement that takes up fuel, but how high the orbit needs to get to. You know, this was the win-win as far as an attempt to land in the ocean. You know, there's plenty of fuel for us to use to get that rocket back on the pad. Where in the other situations, uh, like the, the, the land landing was a, a show of all their hard work and, and the first step forward. This last one was what's to come. And I just love that instead of saying, you know what, there's not enough gas to make a safe landing, so we're not going to try it, which is the government approach towards that, the government agency approach, because it costs money. But in the eyes of the private industry, if I'm going to take it as an outsider, that's money towards R&D, which is always your biggest bleeding point as a corporation or as a, as a, as a business. R&D is a, is a bloody wound that will always be bleeding. But if you learn from that bloody wound of cash, <laughs> which is what they're trying to do, which is landing a rocket, every time they go for that landing, even if it's harder... Those harder ones are going to teach them more about how to prevent failures than an easy one will. So it's all good. It's all important towards the end goal because they're reaching for something that's previously been seen as unattainable. But if it succeeds, we'll save them so much money in the long run and they will be the leaders of it, of that type of rocket. They will be the leaders of that, which means people will want to go to them because it will be cheaper. The money spent now is worth it because the payoff at the end is so huge because it's not just for SpaceX. It's for the entire human race for going into space. This is hugely important. And trying to land one of those rockets gives them so much information that it's worth the money because we're only using them once anyways. It's not even like they're doing anything crazy. If they can figure out that way, which they're doing to land a first stage again, to then reuse it, the whole industry changes. It's, it's, it's a whole new game. And I can't wait to see what they're going to do next. I really can. So make sure you go and check out that broadcast. You can see all of them. I'm, I'm going to put up all those links on this week's episode so you can catch everything and not miss anything. Guarantee, you watch the whole broadcast, you will not be disappointed. They're showing us everything that a government agency like NASA would show us. Very open with, with, the, with what they're showing us on how Dragon is made and how the Falcon 9 launches and every little aspect of of what the mission entails. And the people involved are, are pretty interesting people, man. They're smart. They're, they have energy, they have personality and it's cool to get to know them. Now they're all young. You know, if you're a young kid, young engineer, go start watching this stuff. Even if you're not into space or just into science, this is the next frontier. Go watch it. Get excited. Cause let's go to fucking Mars. Let's go to space. Come on. And that's it. And that's it this for this week, people. Thank you very much for listening. I had a great time. Hope you did too. 
Uh, next week will be week three of the April of Pluto. We'll finish off that list, go through more, and dig a little bit more into the scientific paper and see what else we can dig up. And uh, I've also got a surprise for week four, but I won't spoil that for you now. And just remember, go out there, whatever you're trying to do, whatever you're going for, whatever your goal is, start slow and gain some momentum. Start going towards it and never give up. You're going to fail way more times than you're going to succeed. That's just how it is. You're a human being. Get over it. Go out there. Kick some ass. Spread love. Spread science. And have a great week. Thank you for listening. This has been Today in Space. I am Alex Giorfanos. See you later.